Well, um, I'm Will. I'm the Family ministry, Ministries Director here at Renew, and uh, I have the pleasure of preaching, giving the word of the Lord to you this morning. So with that in mind, um, I think we all have assumptions. I think that's clear. I think we all have preconceived ideas about things. So, for example, carrot cake. <laughs> who, who likes carrot cake in here? Wow. I assumed there would be like two hands. So I was wrong. However, so I thought for the longest time that my wife loved carrot cake. So we went to Jack Stack. She loves Jack Stack's carrot cake. And it's good. Like I've had it. It's very, very, very good carrot cake. Um, She also likes Jay Alexander's carrot cake. But what I came to realize is that those carrot cakes are vastly different than all the other carrot cakes. And so I, I assumed my wife liked carrot cake, so like we would go out and I would tell my parents about how she liked carrot cake, and they were like, hey, do you want carrot cake? And she, come to find out, she goes, hey, uh, I really don't like carrot cake. Like, I, I don't like it as much as you think I like it. I just like those, and that's it. Like, there's two separate categories. So I was assuming that she liked this based on an instance, a single instance. And I think this is true in other areas of our lives. Think about marriage. Think about the assumptions we have with our spouses or with our kids. Right? You ask your husband or your wife to take out the trash. You assume it's going to be done because you ask nicely. But you come home and the trash is still there. And you're upset now because you assume that he or she blatantly disrespected you and said, you know what, I know she told me to take it out, but I'm not going to. When in fact, uh, he probably was doing the dishes, doing the laundry. <laughs> right? He probably had a lot of other things he was doing. But we tend to assume things about people without facts or without truth guiding those assumptions. And ultimately, I, th- I think this, this idea leads to our assumption about how God wants us to worship him. Right? We think uh, God delights in good things, such as like our works. We, we, we think he wants us to do good things, and, and he does, but like, is that ultimately what he's after? Are, are our assumptions based off how God wants to worship, worship him based on the scriptures, what the Bible teaches us and what Jesus teaches us? Or are they based on what other people say, what we assume within ourselves, in, in our fallen nature, that what God delights in? And so I I ask us this question this morning. This is going to be our our guiding question throughout the text this morning. How does the Lord want us to worship him? And this will be answered in in our text this morning. And and there are three ways, I believe, that the text is displaying to us how, how the Lord wants us to worship him. The first two being dependent upon the last. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you could open them to Mark 11... And we will begin. So which brings us to our first way the Lord wants us to worship him. Through belief in Jesus as the Messiah. So this whole middle section of Mark has been leading up to the point when Jesus now enters Jerusalem. To do what he has come to do. Which we talked about last week. Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Mark 10.45. But who Jesus is is a key component to understanding what Jesus is doing and why we are to worship him. 
And understanding our text and the Jews' belief in who the Messiah is will help us understand why Jesus comes into Jerusalem the way that he does. So first, who do the people think the Messiah is? Right, this was a very important topic during the first century to the Jewish people. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah who would restore the kingdom of Israel from their oppression of the Roman Empire. I mean, even, even John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus as the Messiah, didn't, didn't fully understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Right, when, when John was in prison, this is in Matthew 11.3, he, he's prepared the way for the Lord. He, he, he tells the disciples, like, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world at the beginning of the Gospel of John. He says all of these things, but he ends up in prison, and he, now he sends disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Right, John still didn't get it. He, he thought that the Messiah was coming to He thought the Messiah was coming to conquer Rome and to lead the kingdom of Israel back into its glory, here and now. And and this perception of who Jesus is goes farther beyond John, too. Right? And and what he's doing in this time period. they, They assumed he would assume the throne of David. This is what they thought the Messiah would do physically assumed the throne of David, cleansed the land of Gentile defilement, and would lead conquest over Rome. But that is not who Jesus says he is. Jesus, as we found out in Mark 10.45, he is the suffering servant who is laying down his life as a ransom for many. And so it brings us to our text now this morning. Right, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem And he now gets to the outskirts of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and he's planning to enter into Jerusalem. But before he does, he orders two of his disciples to go get a colt so that he can sit on it and ride into Jerusalem. He says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So he's, he's ordering them to go get a colt. Why? Why is he doing this? And this may seem odd, and it may not make sense, but if we remember our Old Testament, I think, if we remember our Old Testament, I think this will bring light to what is happening here in our text. So in chapter 9 of Zechariah, the prophet foresees a day when the Messianic king will come into Jerusalem and save his people. Here's what Zechariah 9.9 says. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Right, this imagery is clear. This is the entrance of the king. Jesus is the king bringing salvation, riding in Jerusalem on the donkey, coming to save his people. But he's not coming in the way that they thought, or the way that we think. This even becomes more clear, right? That this kingly idea of Jesus coming in Jerusalem as king in verses 8 and 9. So we see that the people are laying down their cloaks and they laid down leafy branches on the road where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. Right, this is, this is bringing to mind kingly imagery. Think of Solomon's coronation as king in 1 Kings 1 when he sits on a horse or a donkey and rides in. To Jerusalem. 
or Jehu's coronation as king in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 9. During Jehu's coronation, as he's riding in Jerusalem, the people are laying down their cloaks as he's stepping over them. All this imagery is pointing us that Jesus is the king now riding into Jerusalem. And not only that, the, the people that, that are coming into Jerusalem for Passover, they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This quotation is from Psalm 118. And it's a psalm that highlights this victorious nature of the Messiah coming in to his, coming into the kingdom and conquering his enemies as he enters the temple. This is who Jesus is. He is the king riding on the donkey, coming into Jerusalem. But unlike their ideas of who they thought he was, he is not the king who's an earthly king. He is the suffering servant savior king who has come into Jerusalem not to assume an earthly throne and crush the Roman Empire. No, he has, he has gr- much greater plans in mind. He is on his way to assume a heavenly throne that is purchased with his life death, and resurrection so that he can save us from the real enemy, which is sin and death, not Rome. And this is how the Lord wants us to worship him, by coming to Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, where redemption and hope is found, by believing in the finished and complete work of Christ, that he has gone to the cross and paid our ransom so that your fellowship with God may be restored. And now this, this question becomes, who, who do you think the Messiah is? Or who do you think Jesus is and what did he come to do? And most of you in here would probably say, I, I believe in Jesus. Okay, check. I'm there too. I, I affirm who Jesus is. But, but when we say we believe in Jesus as the Messiah, is it just an affirmation with our words? Or does, it go, does our belief go a little bit deeper than just words? Does it lead us to worship? We affirm who Jesus is and what he has done with our words, but this type of belief is not the belief that leads to true worship. If you would have asked the Jews during this time, do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe the Messiah is coming? I I would guess almost all of them would have said, yeah. The problem was not that they didn't believe in the Savior coming. The problem was that they didn't believe in the fullness of the Savior and of who Jesus actually is. If I were to ask you, do you believe in Jesus, many of you would say, yes, of course. But do we believe in the fullness of Jesus as the Messiah? And what I mean is, do we we think and do we dwell on the fact that God has condescended, he has come down to earth, he has took on human flesh to resurrect our cold and dead hearts? And then does that lead us to worship him, to cherish him, to praise him with songs of thanksgiving? where we pray with all earnestness and we long to see and behold him and see and cherish him as he is. This type of belief is different than just simply acknowledging truths with our lips. Let us worship Jesus through belief in who he is, for he is the only way to the Father. But now let us continue on in our text. So, so this, this kingly imagery is clear of what's going on in our text. But what's interesting in this triumphal entry is is how it ends. Jesus comes into the temple where 
He's not greeted as a king by the religious leaders. No, he just, he looks around. What does the text say? He entered Jerusalem, and when he went into the temple, he looked around at everything, and it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The majestic, kingly parade as Jesus enters Jerusalem has now ended suddenly in a very anticlimactic way. Think about this. I mean, think about it's the 4th of July. I mean, I grew up with 4th of July. My dad would go all out for 4th of July. So think about it. I buy the biggest, best firework. Spend all my money on this firework. I go to light it, and I'm like ready for this celebration. Light it, and then nothing. It's a dud. It just burst into flames. That's it. No big boom, no beautiful display. That's what's happening here. The Messiah King is finally here, and the people who are supposed to be ready to receive their king reject him. Which leads us into our next point. How does the Lord want us to worship him? Through belief in Jesus as the Messiah, but also through faithful dependence in Jesus. So what does the faithful dependence mean to the Jews? To the Jews during this time, worship consisted of dependence on the temple. Having the visible temple as a sign that God is indeed with them. And dependence on performing all these sacrifices that were required by the law. But this dependence that was supposed to lead them to fully relying upon God for everything simply became a transactional experience. An external means of worship. Not a worship that led to trusting in God and depending on him for all that they have. I mean, look at the text. Jesus comes into the temple the next day. Right? Jump down to verse 15 with me. So he comes into Jerusalem and begins driving out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry them through the temple. This is a vastly different picture of what the temple is supposed to be and what Jesus finds it. So, first, let's dive into a brief history lesson. I think this will give us some good context about what the temple is. And, and yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll help us understand what Jesus is doing here. Um, so, the first temple was erected by King Solomon in the 10th century. So the one on the left, that small one, that was erected by King Solomon in the 10th century. Then it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC, only then to begin being rebuilt in 538 BC, when all the Jews were allowed to return home from Jerusalem under Cyrus, king of Persia. And they finished its construction in 515. But it was pretty pathetic in comparison to what it originally was. And it wasn't until the reign of Herod the Great under Roman rule that the temple became this extravagant place again. I mean, look at this. Herod doubled it in size. He put white stone all around it. It's an absolutely stunning and beautiful temple. And this is the temple that Jesus is walking into. It looks glorious. It looks mighty. It looks magnificent on the outside. But he walks in and he finds something that's not emblematic of what it truly is. So when he gets to the temple, 
he sees what's recorded. He sees the money changers in this beautiful temple. And he begins driving all those out who bought and sold. He overturned the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything throughout the temple. He, he stopped briefly the transactions that were needed to offer sacrifices so the people could be okay with God. And all the while doing this, he's teaching them. He's saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Right, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56, 7 here, and also Jeremiah 7, 11. Right, Isaiah 56, 7, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. What Jesus walked into, what he, what he saw, was not at all what it was supposed to be. It had become just this symbol of mundane, of apathetic, of, of un of, of unheartfilled worship. Right? It, it was supposed to be a place that the nations could flock to, where they could see God and they could know God. And that's why God had elected a people. He had raised up Abraham so that all the nations would be blessed in him. But it had not become that at all. It was supposed to be a place where they could find hope and peace in the presence of God but it was turned into a place of a ritualistic penance. Now let's back up. Let's back up here. If you would jump back with me now to verses 12 through 14. So before now, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he cleanses it, or better, he condemns it. Mark records a parabolic instance in verses 12 to 14 that shed light on Jesus' actions in the temple. So read with me here. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to them, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So it's interesting. It feels disconnected. So we have Jesus entering Jerusalem. Then we have inserted here this parable of Jesus cursing a fig tree. And then we have Jesus cleansing the temple. And what it seems to be happening is um, Mark is shedding light on something for us. He's, He's drawing our attention to what is taking place in the temple and why Jesus is doing what he is doing. So Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree. It's in leaf. It's bursting with leaves. It looks like there should be fruit all over it. And he's hungry. So he goes to to search for the fig so he can eat it. But when he comes to the fig tree, he inspects it and he finds no figs, just all these leaves. And there's, there's no fruit. Therefore, Jesus curses the fig tree and is emphatic that no one shall ever eat from it again. Now, why does Jesus do this? The text says that it was not the season for figs at the end of verse 13. And, and I think Mark adds this note that it's not the season for figs to draw our attention to the fact that it's not about the fig tree. The event is serving as a symbol for us to understand what Jesus does next when he goes into the temple. The fig tree gave the appearance of fruitfulness, but it was barren and was cursed. Does this sound familiar to anyone? 
The temple, which is beautiful and majestic, is absolutely bankrupt. It bears no fruit and has turned worship of God that is marked by dependence on him through prayer and sacrifices that should be pointing the people to their need for God into these rituals that puff up and give people a false sense of their right to stand before God and their worship of God. And as we see in our text, this is not what faithful dependence meant to God. Jesus, God in the flesh, cannot endure this assembly. And God is clear about this in many areas of Scripture. I mean, let's look at Isaiah 1, verses 10 to 13, as an example. The prophet Isaiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come and appear before me, who has required of me a trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. And again, in Micah, the prophet Micah says in chapter 6, what, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Notice what God requires for faithful dependence has nothing to do with outward appearances, but everything to do with bearing fruit inwardly by having a changed heart. So what, what are we relying upon this morning in our worship of God? Do, do we think because you come to church or I come to church or we live a, a good and moral life or we know lots of facts about God and have lots of scripture memorized that that God somehow accepts our worship of him? This is, in a sense, of what the Jewish people thought. Because they have the, the, the temple, and they perform all the rituals the right way, they are accepted before God. And that's, that's not it. They've missed it. They've missed what all the temple is supposed to be about. They've missed what the sacrifice is supposed to be about. So let us not miss the point of why we gather here of why we come here, of why we open the word of God, about why we memorize scripture, why we put it in our hearts so that we may know him and we may worship him as him and we may cherish him above all else. For he delights in us coming to him, not in our giving of meaningless, heartless things to him. So, so what should faithful dependence mean to us? What should it mean to you? So it's interesting, in the, in the temple, so, so this temple picture that was a few slides back, um, there was this area around the temple. So you see the four walls, the big walls, all the way around. So this was the court of the Gentiles. So this was a certain area leading into the inner, there was a certain area that led to the inner area of the temple. 
outside these walls that the Gentiles could not cross, strictly due to the fact that they were Gentiles. There was even a stone that hung there, and it was forbidding Gentiles from entering. And if they entered, that they could be condemned to death. So this is the exact opposite of what God wanted. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the peoples. Think back to Isaiah 56. But the Jews' actions showed that they viewed God as a God of the Jews only. Or in other words, a God of outward appearances and external devotions. This is not faithful dependence. Faithful dependence means opening yourself up to God. All of you. Recognizing that you are utterly helpless and cannot possibly offer anything up to God that could earn you any right to stand before him. You can't memorize enough scripture or come to church enough or live morally enough or know enough about God. Faithful dependence is being fully dependent on God, not yourself. Or how you think he ought to be worshipped. This is true worship. By giving everything to God. Letting him see all the dark and nasty places of you so that he may come and heal you by the blood of Christ. However, this this faithful dependence can only come through a renewed heart, which is our third and final point. So now after Jesus' condemnation of the temple, the next day the disciples see the fig tree that Jesus has cursed because it was fruitless. So Peter says in verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So the disciples heard Jesus curse the fig tree back in verse 14, and now they see that it has indeed come true. The fig tree is now withered. If the fig tree is representative of the temple, then the temple is going away. And this indeed does come to pass in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed by Rome. If the temple is gone, how then are they to worship God? This would have been the question the Jews would have had. And as we have already discussed, the Jews thought they were approved by God through the temple's presence and its beauty and through following the commands and through ritual sacrifices. However, without the temple, they could not do those things anymore. Thankfully, Jesus tells his disciples again, somewhat parabolically, how to worship him properly without the temple. In verses 22 to 24, Jesus tells them. So Jesus says, he answered to them after they noticed that the fig tree had withered. He says, have faith in God, truly I say to you, whoever says that this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you, whenever you are standing praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is, also, who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What is interesting here is that the mountain referenced is in the definite. Like it's, he's speaking of a specific mountain. Most likely referring to the temple mount in our given context. A.K.A. the, the temple itself. 
In other words, Jesus is saying that they should ask for this temple to be taken up and destroyed. And Jesus is saying this is a good thing. Right? Symbolically, this is referring to the temple or the mountains that we build up in our own hearts. We create these temples thinking this is how God wants us to worship him. But these need to be destroyed. And these need to be replaced with a new heart. With Jesus' presence by the Holy Spirit that he now gives us, dwelling in us. We are now temples of God. Dwelling places for the Holy Spirit. There's no need for the temple anymore. Jesus has come to make a new way for us. To have full relationship with God. And, And Jesus shows us how a renewed heart worships in three ways in these last three verses. First, through faith that while God may painfully do away with the old, he is bringing something or someone much better. God is destroying the external means of worship to replace it with a renewed internal motive to worship him with all of our hearts. Second, through the personal relationship in prayer, which is what the the temple was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, but it was a, a den of robbers. And Jesus expands on this idea more clearly, I think, in Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23, where he says to them, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just as the the Jews were doing these works in the temple, we can find ourselves doing the same things. However, just as Jesus wanted the temple to be a house of authentic, heart-filled prayer, so also he wants us to be the same. So that when we behold him and see him in all his glory, he will not say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. But he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And thirdly, through forgiving and asking for forgiveness. A heart that has been renewed understands the gravity of our sin and just how much we have been forgiven. This leads to extending the same forgiveness to others. I mean, think about it with me. Right? God forgave you and me of sin when he did not have to. Right? The most logical thing for him to do, according to our standard, would would be to condemn us for our sin because he is holy and any imperfection cannot stand to be in his presence. Yet, because of the great love with which he has loved us, he forgave us in Christ so that we may experience and see his goodness. And then we can extend forgiveness to all of those around us so that they may see and experience the same hope and peace that we have in Christ. It is important to understand this renewed heart only comes through the life-giving power of Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. John 14, 6 says, this is where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everything the temple was supposed to be was simply a shadow of what was to come. God's presence is now dwelling in all those who profess faith in Jesus and have have had their hearts renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. 
And so now this brings us back to carrot cake. When Cassie first told me she loved Jack Sack's carrot cake, I didn't think much of it. I just assumed she loved all kinds of carrot cake. It wasn't until Cassie told me personally, I don't really like carrot cake that much, that I realized I was wrong. So we, we continually come to assumptions about God, whether we realize it or not. When it comes to our, our worship of God, we, we think that he desires our works and our outward appearances that please him. And it's important that we do not believe these lies. We need to go directly to the source, to the word himself, and to, to prayer to get an understanding of who God is and the worship he demands of us. What, what does God require of us to worship him? That we believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That he is the king who has come into Jerusalem to conquer the enemy that holds us under oppression, sin, and death. And, and when we realize that, when we, when we understand what Jesus has done and how he has unshackled the chains that lay on us because of sin, that leads us to belief that leads to worship, to cherishing him, to longing to be with him, to see him, to be in his word. And this type of worship leads us to understand also that we are dependent upon him for everything. He is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything we see is God's. He needs nothing. We have nothing that we can give him that can bring our righteousness to stand before him. He simply just wants all of us, all of our hearts, all of our doubts, all of our anxieties, our insecurities, that we can come and find comfort in his presence. And finally, he, he allows that, he gives us that new heart that the prophet Jeremiah sees, where God will remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh one that is tender to the things of God, that is renewed, and that leads us to be able to worship him. And he gives us his spirit that now dwells in us and leads us into his presence. So let us ponder and let us meditate and let us contemplate on what Christ has done for us and on who he says he is and not who we assume him to be. And let that change us from the inside out. For that is what is delightful to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us your word to show us exactly who you are and to know exactly what you require of us. Spirit, I pray that you just, you move right now. Lord, whatever is hindering us from seeing Christ fully, Spirit, remove that. Soften our hearts to see Christ as, as, as he is and to know that you have saved us, that you have gone to the place where we cannot go. Spirit, move in us this morning and lead us to worship you, Lord, with full devotion, with a renewed heart that sings thanksgivings and songs and praises joyously and unendingly. 
Father, we thank you for this day that you have made for us to gather and to look to Christ so that we may be healed and saved. So convict us, lead us into your presence, renew us day by day that we may worship you and know you above all else. And we ask all this in the name of our mighty, mighty King Jesus. Amen.